This love series is great. We've talked about, I mean, the topics that are in it are really helpful. Most people are thrilled to hear them. Lots of help with uh, marriages and relationships and generally the topic of love. Today is where it gets a little bit crazy. Today is an are you kidding me, Jesus, day. Because today's the day we talk about his challenge, his call to something that takes great maturity and deep spirituality, his challenge to love our enemies. I've entitled this message, Washing the Feet That Kick You. (coughs) Pardon me, I'm sorry. And that's really what this is. You know, in this discussion, we're going to see that the beauty of importance, the beauty and importance of the idea of the opposite is not lost on our culture. We, we're sort of drawn to opposites, and that's not lost on our culture. Even some cultural icons uh, in our time have recognized that. I'm a fan of Marc Chagall, the artist Marc Chagall. I love Chagall's works. Chagall said, all colors are the friends of their neighbors but the lovers of their opposites. He understood that in terms of art, and the beauty and the, the balance and the importance of the opposite. A professor of sociology, a Catholic theologian at University of Arizona, Andrew Greeley, actually went so far as to say, and he, and he, added, this is, he added, this has always been right at the center of Catholic thought. He said, God is the combination of opposites. He was speaking in the context of male and female. He created them. There's these, there are these opposites, and that God is somehow the combination of the opposites. The beauty and importance of the idea of the opposite is not lost on our culture, is it? Neither was the importance of the opposite lost on Jesus. Jesus challenges us, in effect, to do the opposite of what seems to come naturally to us. For instance, when he says, I want you to wash one another's feet, that's, can you raise your hand if that's the opposite of what comes naturally to you? Washing dirty feet, as Jesus instructed me to do, is the last thing I'm naturally inclined to do. Listen, even when they're my own dirty feet, I'm not naturally inclined. Jesus comes and says, do the opposite. Christ's whole concept of repentance is about turning around and doing the opposite or turning around and going in the opposite direction. The beauty of the opposite is not lost on us, neither is it lost on Jesus. He says, in order to find your life, you must what? Do the opposite. Take the counterintuitive move and lose your life. Willfully and willingly lose your life. It's just the opposite of what you would expect. But the ultimate, the most absurd opposite to which Jesus calls us is one that replicates his entire reason for coming to earth in the first place. It's the opposite he calls loving your enemies. I mean, think about this. If everything we do is a theological statement, and I believe it is, every act of life is a theological statement, 
It's a statement of what we believe about God, the nature of God. If everything we do is a theological statement, then the way we respond to our enemies is a statement of belief about the way God responds to his enemies. And when Jesus tells us, love your enemies, he tells us to do exactly what he did in leaving that throne and coming to earth, right? We were once enemies of God, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And there's something about that kind of love, experience the opposite of what you realize you deserve that twists you and changes you and torques your heart and makes you say, wow, what was that about? Would you stand with me for the reading of the Word of God? And this morning I'm going to read this Palm Sunday. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 6. Where Jesus... On Palm Sunday, as Pastor Jeff read earlier, experience people as both friend and enemy within the same week. But experience no difference in the way he loved them. And that's not a surprise, because listen to what he says in Luke chapter 6, 20 through 38. Speaking to the multitudes, and then he turns to his disciples, and gives a message inside the message. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Here are all the opposites. Blessed are you who weep now, you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men and women hate you, and ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day. Leap for joy. Do the opposite of what comes natural. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Opposite. Do good to those who hate you. Another way of saying the same thing. Opposite. Bless those who curse you. Another way of saying the same thing, but an opposite. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer that person the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from that person either. Give to everyone who asks of you. Whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive back, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons 
of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil people. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Do the opposite. May God add his blessing to his holy word, his fully inspired message to us. Amen. Be seated, please. Here I go with a blow in my nose, guys. I swear, I will one day figure out what it is in this room that I'm allergic to. And you say, you've been saying that for eight years. Get it figured out. And Jesus knew when he talked about loving your enemies, blessing those who curse you, praying for those who are trying to subvert you, he knew of what he spoke. Because he did ride into town a celebrity and have his week end quite differently than it had begun. The same crowd that cheered him as he came into town on a colt would only days later jeer him as he was ridden out in a burial cloth. He arrived on Palm Sunday a hero, left Good Friday a goat, yet he never, ever quit loving. If Palm Sunday is anything at all, it's a picture of a man who loved his enemies, even when they appeared to have been acting as though they were his friends. He did the opposite. So the question comes to us today, great challenge, not so easily done. How do we love our enemies? How do we do the opposite of what comes naturally to us? How do we do that? And I just want to offer in these few minutes that we have left to us here some insights that Scripture gives us, not into the rightness or wrongness of loving our enemies. Most of us know that that's what God challenges us to do. Most of us know that that's what we receive from God. It's just that we find it so difficult to do it. It's not natural at all, is it, to love our enemies. But here's some help. I find some help. First of all, how do we love our enemies? First answer is know your enemies. Know who really is an enemy. You've got to know them before you can love them. We've asked the question, who is my neighbor in Scripture? And then the challenge is, okay, then go and love your neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor? In fact, that was asked for us in Scripture. What about the question, who is my enemy? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever pondered it? Who is my enemy? Exactly who is it in my life that Jesus is asking me to love in his name? What does an enemy, at least what does my enemy, look like anyway? Here are just some thoughts on that. Some of us feel like our enemies are our competitors. So to some of us, the competition is the opposition. My competitor, that's my enemy. Or some of us would say my enemy is simply people someone who sees things differently than me. So my neighbor who is aligned with a different political party than me is my enemy. 
because their platform is against everything I stand for. Or an enemy might just be someone that we've decided is our enemy. We don't know why. We've just decided that we don't like them, and they're against us, and they're our enemy. In high school, there was a fellow named Mike Toomey. Now, I didn't like Mike Toomey. So at every, chan- every chance I got, I was on Mike Toomey's case. I pushed Mike Toomey. I talked bad about Mike Toomey. I protected myself against Mike Toomey. I tried to be funnier than Mike Toomey in the classroom. And you know what? I was thinking about this week, thinking about this, this week, that this week. I have absolutely no idea of why I saw Mike Toomey as my enemy. He never did anything to me, stole anything from me, said anything really bad about me unless I initiated it first. Sometimes we have enemies, and when we ask ourselves, why is that person my enemy? We can't answer the question. Maybe they rubbed us wrong one day or we're insecure and threatened by them, but they get listed on our page of enemies. Even if it's just our competition or somebody who sees something differently than us or somebody that we've labeled an enemy for no reason, no measurable reason, the fact doesn't change that Jesus says whether it makes sense to you that they're an enemy or not, love them. But Jesus spoke his words, love your enemies, remember, in the context of Roman occupation. There was Roman occupation around him, and at least at some of the leadership uh, levels, Jewish opposition to him. So he's not just asking us here to love the nuisance enemy. He's asking us to love the nuisance enemy, but that's that's not where it stops. He asks us to go beyond people who are a nuisance to us. He's challenging us to love the profound enemy, the measurable enemy, the potentially harmful enemy. He's asking us to love, because that's what people would have heard, right? When Jesus says, love your enemy, what do you think their minds went to right away? The enemy that was in uniform all around them, the occupation. And when he turned to the disciples, as he did here, and says, love your enemy, they would have thought Romans and some of the Jews that are fixing to kill Jesus that are against everything we stand for, who feel like a real threat to us. These are people who seem to live in order to bring you down. Their objective objective in life is to trip you up and cause you harm. So it's the nuisance enemy, but it's also the profound enemy. You've got to know who your enemy is if you're ever going to know who it is Jesus is asking you to love. Folks who always seem to be pushing against you. People who oppose you in order to harm you, to undermine your progress in life, and even to undermine your mission in life. These are the enemies Jesus asks us to love, and we cannot love them if we don't know them. Know who they are. Before we can love our enemies, we've got to know those enemies. They are everyone from the people who rub me the wrong way to the intentional underminers of my life's mission. And I look at the Mike Toomeys and the Saddam Husseins and everything in between. Can I, can I just pray for evil to come upon at least one of them? 
And Jesus reminds me, everything you do, my son, is a representation of my character, my nature, if you're my follower, if you're my body. So the answer is, not if you want to follow me. Do for others what I've done for you. Love your enemy. Know who they are, and then love them. That's crazy. That's just not American. That's, that's, that's the opposite of what I naturally do. Now, there's a second point I want to add here. So know your enemies, know who they are, who they aren't. Second point, once you identify your enemies, confound them. Give them the opposite of what they deserve. When they're bracing themselves for the punch, let them be shocked by the fact that they received a kiss or a handshake. Confound your enemies with love. I have a little sign in my office that says, uh, the best way to change the world is to change a place that changes places. And I was thinking about that this morning when I was in there looking at that sign, and I thought, yeah, and the best way to change a place that changes places is to love the heck out of it. Love it like crazy. Love it way beyond expectations. Confound your enemy. Give them the opposite of what they deserve. That was the practice of Jesus. Remember at the end of this Palm Sunday week? You know what happened. We're going to celebrate it on Friday night. He's, take, he's arrested. He's peaceful, but he's arrested. He's brutalized, and he's killed and hung on a cross. Now, thank God he ends up being resurrected from the dead. We'll celebrate that next Sunday. And from the cross, what did Jesus say when he looked out at the people that he chose to come and help, that he did nothing but love the people who had brutalized him? Do you, you remember his words? If they were my words, they would have said, okay, God, unleash hell on this crowd. Hey, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. You saved others, save yourself. He was hearing that kind of stuff. They were trash-talking Jesus while he was on the cross. I'd have said, I'll, I'll show you some saving myself. Stand back, brother. About to light this place up. Even the old hymn says he could have called 10,000 angels. He didn't, that hymn doesn't mean he could have called them for a nice little tea party. But Jesus instead practices once again the opposite. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Have mercy upon them. Once we know who that enemy is that God asks us to love, the next thing we do is we confound them by giving them the opposite of what they're expecting, the opposite of what they deserve. And look at how that does confound people, even at the cross. In Luke 23, look at the, the way that that plays with their head. Two men, both criminals, were also let out with Jesus to be executed. And when they came to the place 
called the skull. They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. The rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. And that wasn't a statement of faith and hope. That was said with cynicism. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him. And they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then they had a good laugh at Christ's expense. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Not so much a proclamation of nobility, but one of mocking. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Hey, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him and said, Don't you fear God, he said, since you were under the same sentence? We are punished justly. We're getting just exactly what we deserve. But this man has done nothing. This man is getting what? The opposite of what he deserves. And I'm arguing, and he was offering the opposite of what those who gave him the opposite deserved. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he obviously was not mocking because Jesus looked over at him and said, and it probably wasn't real easy for Jesus to say anything by then, I'll tell you the truth, bro. Today, not just one day, you'll be with me in paradise. He's, he's even showing mercy there and all that pain. But it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So, but coming back to my point, mocking, 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 brutality everywhere, blood dripping all over the place. It's about noon. Darkness comes over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two in some other location in the temple. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into, my, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. So he had said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I suspect that was heard. You've got people crying, people laughing, people jeering. You've got people casting lots for this valuable clothing that Jesus had. You've got the conversation, the juxtaposition of the conversation between the two thieves, one on the left, one on the right, one mocking, one receiving mercy from Jesus. He's offering mercy to the crowd, asking God to show mercy to the crowd, offering mercy to a criminal who deserved death. While he was on a cross, he did not deserve. And then listen to what it says in verse 47, because... When you show love to enemies, give them the opposite of what they deserve, they are confounded by it. The centurion, seeing and hearing what had happened, and we have no reason to believe this centurion was not among those mocking and gambling, and he praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. But I want to focus on that one centurion. 
what he heard, what he saw, what was going on in his heart. Like, who is this guy? Surely by now he'll start cursing Israel. Who is this guy? What, when he's really, really hurting, and we all know that when you're hurting, the worst part of you comes out, right? It's right at the, right at the skin. I mean, it's just ready to come out. Surely now, finally, he'll show that he's a little bit normal. And this centurion sees nothing but forgiveness, love, mercy, and grace leaking out of Jesus. And he has a t- turn. He's confounded. And he says, I think I had it wrong. This guy is innocent. Surely he is the Son of God. What do we do after we recognize our enemies? We confound our enemies with love. An enemy that offers hatred and receives nothing in return but love will experience very often a holy confusion that is life-altering. Now, it doesn't happen in one occurrence. It doesn't happen overnight. But we're to confound our enemies with love. The personal consequences of choosing to do that may be great, may be costly and significant. But that's an example of saying, I'm going to trade away today's very short-term reward. Remember that from the text we read earlier? For tomorrow's long-lasting reward. I'm going to see the redemption of this enemy of mine as more valuable than whatever it is I will save for myself by not returning love to them. It might be costly, but it's worth it. Now the question comes, how do you do that? How in the world do you recreate your person to become a person who's naturally inclined to do the opposite? I have some help. Because I need some help. Here are some practical advice for becoming the person who's more naturally able to confound his or her enemies. First of all, pray for heart reconstruction. My spiritual director a few months ago challenged me to be more regular and precise in my praying. So he would ask me, are you praying the prayers? I said, no. I don't regularly pray the prayers, you know, book in my day with, with prescribed prayers. So we set on my phone a little trumpet sound. And that, it's really a noble sounding thing, calls me to prayer. Goes off in the morning, goes off at night. In the morning, my practice is to pray the Lord's Prayer. And there's, if you remember, there is a phrase in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive me, my sins, as I forgive those who sin against me. It's in the plural. but And I'm most of the mornings challenged with that last stanza. And so I introduce that theme, and then I am led by the Spirit to go off and pray along that theme. And most of the time, my prayer is this. You've got to increase my ability to forgive. If my experience of forgiveness is tied even though I couldn't explain it to you, somehow related to my ability to forgive, I'm sunk. Jesus offers grace, and we can't earn that forgiveness, but there's some connection there. And I end up praying, 
Increase my ability to forgive. Make me a gracious, grace-giving, forgiving person. Cause me to have thicker skin, Lord. Let things roll off my back. Let me offer to people what I've received from you and not have my first step to be uh, payback, but my first step to be, that's okay, I understand, forgiveness. One of the ways we can learn to do that is to pray for heart reconstruction. And then if that's not helping all that much, there are some things we can do in life. And I, I would argue that we can practice forgiveness in smaller things. So when there's a huge sin against us, it's tough to forgive that. But if we've been practicing forgiveness in smaller things, virtually insignificant things, you know, we sort of ramp up to that, and the next thing you know, that's your, that's your practice. For instance, here's something. Say absolutely nothing and, in fact, back off the next time somebody cuts you off on 101. That's practicing forgiveness in a smaller thing. Now, if you're like me, you're saying right now, that is not a smaller thing. <laughs> that is a big thing. And then, and then when you go past them, don't look at them. <laughs> Just stare straight ahead. Or here's one, don't correct insignificant details when someone gets them wrong in the telling of a story. Small thing, but it's a good rehearsal. Just let it go. It's not that big a deal anyway. You learn to show grace. Here's one. I'm kind of hoping my wife hears this tape. The next time your husband's in the shower and he decides to take the empty can of shaving cream and throw it across the bathroom trying to make it into the basket, and he makes it, but he uses the bathroom wall as a backboard and leaves a dent, you don't have to say anything about that. Just let that go. Or, or when you're sitting down to dinner and he, poor guy, goes to put dressing on his salad thinking that there's one of those little squirt holes, but there's no squirt hole, and he picks it up, unscrews his talking, and goes like this, and this dressing goes all over. You don't have to say anything about that. Just let it go. And you'll learn to be more forgiving. You know, not that those are aimed at anybody in particular. Practice forgiveness in the smaller things. And then finally this, because we're still on that second point, confound your enemies with love. How do we become that kind of a person? Here's another help. Stay in touch with instances when you were let off the hook. Sometimes we can't forgive because we have terrible memories. We don't remember that we are people who have been forgiven. I was at Safeway a couple weeks ago backing out of a parking spot and I backed right in front of a lady and her children. I, I was so, it bothered me so much that, that I had done that. She had to stop short and pull her kids back. I rolled the window down and I said, Ma'am, I am so sorry. I really didn't see you, but there's no excuse for that. I'm so, so sorry. And you know what she said to me? I, th I expected her to say, You know, young man, <laughs> no, I didn't expect that. You know... <laughs> You know, sir, you need to be more careful. There are children. This is not, I had a guy come and yell at me once. This is not a racetrack. It's a parking lot. You know, I expected something like that. But instead, she said, oh, don't worry about it. There's a blind spot right there. She said this, I did the very same thing just yesterday. Remember times when you've been let off the hook. And when you remember times like, eh, that was me two weeks ago. Or that may be me next week you tend to be able to be more forgiving. Confound 
our enemies, once we've found them, confound them. Once we've known them, confound them with love. Finally, this. Have no enemies. Choose to have no enemies. Know your enemies. Okay, that's a likely enemy. That's a likely enemy. When they're there in your life, confound them by giving them the opposite of what they deserve. Confound them with love. But the most mature expression, the most mature practice, is to choose to have no enemies. Ultimately, whether you're somebody's enemy is up to them. But whether somebody is your enemy or not is up to you. The fact that somebody may see you as an enemy doesn't necessarily mean you have to see them as one. Listen to what Romans 12 says. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And then this line. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Choose to have no enemies. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. The fact is the Lord wants to show mercy instead, and we've got to be at peace with that. On the contrary, tell me if you've heard this before. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Wait, my enemy's got a sword and he's coming against me and he's starting to lose energy. I'm supposed to give him an energy bar? You ready for this crazy answer? Exactly. Hold on a second, brother. I don't think you'd be able to swing that sword up my neck with any force. You have, let's take a break and you can come at me again. <laughs> If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will confound him. You will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, tied to the idea of retribution, of, of reaction. But overcome evil with what? With good, with love. Have no enemies. And so far as it has anything to do with you, have no enemies. Be at peace. The fact that somebody sees you as an enemy doesn't mean you have to see them as an enemy. Secondly, Christians, remember this, Christians only have one enemy. And that enemy is the same enemy that's the enemy of God, the father of lies, the one behind all evil, Satan. That's our enemy. Ephesians 6 reminds us, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not with our neighbor. Our struggle is not with that person who's in the other political party. Our struggle is not with the LGTB community. Our struggle is not with the school district. Our struggle is not with the Democrats or the Republicans or the independents. We have one enemy. The rest of the people are our colleagues in the struggle as humans. We have one enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the evil schemes 
it says. The rulers against the authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. We have plenty of people with whom we disagree profoundly and have aggressive discussion. And folks who are making choices that from our Christian perspective we think are not in their best interest and not consistent with the heart of God. I'm not pretending that's not true. That's not my enemy. That's my partner in humanity. We have one enemy. Have no enemies. The fact that someone sees you as their enemy doesn't mean you have to see them as your, them as your enemy. You know what I'm saying? And we have one enemy. Finally, perhaps that's why Jesus seemed to always be trying to shorten his list of enemies and widen his circle of friends. You ever notice that about Jesus? So in Mark 9, Jesus says, Teacher, they say, Teacher, John says to Jesus, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. He was not one of us. But Jesus said, stop hindering him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil against me. For this famous words of Jesus, he who is not against us is for us. You see, Jesus trying to narrow and shrink his list of enemies and expand his list of friends. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name, Uh, Because uh, you're following me, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Widen the circle of friends. Have no enemies. There's the ultimate response to the challenge to love your enemies. Know them. Confound them. Throw away the list of them. Because we really only have one enemy. The rest are our friends. My friend John Nodhilfer sends a weekly little devotional. And he told a story this week that I want to read to you. He said, soon after arriving in Oakland, he was a pastor at our church in Oakland years ago. In the mid-70s, I was invited to hear the witness of a former Berkeley radical. (laughs) Talk about redundant. Berkeley radical. He was on the run in Europe after advocating the overthrow of the U.S. government. So he's he's exiled. Radical. He found himself hitchhiking in Italy when an American businessman, catch that, who makes his livelihood because of the American system, chanced upon him and offered him a ride to Rome in his Cadillac. On the entire trip, he found himself spilling out his venom about everything American, including American business. When they got to Rome, the businessman helped him unload his belongings, put him up in a hotel. It was then that he burst out and said, what are you doing? Why are you doing all of this? What haunted him from then on was the reply of the businessman. The only words of witness he heard from that man whose livelihood he had been condemning during the trip. And he said this, the businessman did, Our Lord taught us to wash each other's feet. He put him in a, on a spiritual journey, a spiritual quest, which eventually led the radical to be a true radical, following Jesus 
as his leader. You know, it's easy to love people who are kind to us. It's even easy to love people who are ambivalent toward us. Not that difficult. It's a fairly natural thing to love those who agree with us or who support the same values we support. But the love Jesus is talking about is a love that goes well beyond that. The love of Christianity is a love that washes the very feet that kick us. The love of Jesus is a love that loves even our most forceful, effective, and severe enemies. Here's the question with which I want you to leave today. Will our church navigate the crazy, challenging, threatening, dizzying waters of that kind of love? Will you love like that? You have heard it said, love your neighbors. But I say to you, love your enemies. Why I need help with that? Let's pray. God, would you bring to mind right now in these last couple of minutes that we have together here. How many minutes? Oh, no minutes. The faces of those that before today we have, well, even today we consider our enemies. They're the ones that threaten us. They're the ones that anger us. They're the ones that oppose us. They stand for everything we stand against. And begin your transformation in our hearts so that we see what's really going on when we see their faces. We see not them opposing us, but we see somebody pushing them, the real enemy enticing them, subverting them. Redirect, Lord, that passion with which we stand against those we see as our enemies and aim it at that one enemy instead. Give us the capacity to love even those who will never love us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.